well, we are in the book of Psalms, so let's turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 begins the next major section of the book of Psalms. We said that Psalms is divided into five major sections, and this is the beginning of section 3. And in your Bible, you might see a little division there. It says book 3 or section 3. It goes through Psalm 73 to Psalm 89, and then Psalm 90 becomes section 4, and so on. You'll notice the superscription over top the psalm. It's called a psalm of Asaph. Now what do we know about Asaph? Well, we know that Asaph was a singer in the temple. And he was part of a musical family. And he played the cymbals. And if we had time, I could take you to all the different passages that show this. One of his brothers played the harp, another played the lyre, and you know, his father was a singer, sort of a director. And uh, Asaph had one other qualification the scripture talks about, is that he was a seer, S-E-E-R, or a seer. He could see things, we would call them today a prophet. He could see things that other people couldn't see. And he writes... All the Psalms, from Psalm 73 to Psalm 83. If you look at the next you know, 10 or 11 Psalms, you'll see his name at the top of every one. He also wrote Psalm 50. So with Asaph, we have a different style of writing. And it's much lighter in the sense that you can read through it faster, you can make comments on it faster. Where some of the other Psalms were you know, just filled with material, and you had to really explain a lot. And these psalms, you can move a little faster, and that's nice. One of the things about Psalm 73 that most Americans uh, are aware of, they don't know about it, but uh, when I mention it, you will become aware of it. It was the basis, Psalm 73 was the basis for Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon. In fact, it's considered the most famous sermon ever preached in America. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Where he described sinners as spiders hanging by one silk thread over a fire that is licking and trying to reach that thread so that the spider goes right down to destruction. And you, the verses that he used in preaching this great sermon, which by the way, sparked the first great awakening in America. You know, you heard of the Great Awakening? This was the sermon that sparked the Great Awakening. And the verses he concentrated on were verses 18 and 19. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, they are brought to destruction. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, the theme of this Psalm, and we're going to discover, by the way, that Edwards, like a lot of preachers in his days, just took a verse or two out of a big passage and preached on it. They didn't go verse by verse through the scriptures. That's sort of relatively new, a new concept, going, actually trying to study something within its context. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But when we look at Psalm 73 as a whole, we're going to see that the theme of this psalm 
is the danger of getting, getting our eyes on the wrong thing. So that's the theme, the danger of getting our eyes on the wrong thing. Okay. Our outline, we're going to divide the psalm into two parts. Part number one, verses one through 16, the trial of the believer. The trial of the believer. This is, these are some things that are common to most believers. And you will probably be able to recognize yourself in those first 16 verses. And then verse 17 through the end, the triumph of a believer. And the major trial of a believer that this is going to talk about is getting your eyes on the wrong thing, and then how can you overcome that? Okay? So let's look at the trial. Asaph opens his psalm with an affirmation. Look at verse 1. Truly, meaning it's without dispute, uh, beyond discussion, God is good. God is good. Now let me tell you something. If you, you can base your whole theology on that. God is good. And you can start drawing conclusions from that. And you'll be on safe ground. I remember a number of years ago, Oral Roberts had a motto. And his motto was, God is a good God. Of course, a lot of us in this room say, well, Oral Roberts you know, had a lot of bad things to say. It doesn't matter. A clock is right two times a day, isn't it? And Oral Roberts was right on this. God is a good God. Now, what he didn't say was this. The next part of verse 1. God is good to who? Israel. To Israel. That's line number 1. Okay. God's not only good to Israel, line number two says the same thing in a different way. He is good to such as are pure in heart. So line one, Israel, is identified with those people who are pure of heart. That's why the Apostle Paul said, all Israel isn't Israel. The real Israel are those who have a pure heart. There are a lot of you know, scoundrels that were part of Israel, weren't they? False prophets. That, in God's estimation, true Israel is those who have a pure heart. Remember Jesus when he comes to Nathaniel and he says, an Israelite in whom there is no what? God. He had a pure heart. That's a true Israelite. That's how Jesus defines an Israelite. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Did every Jew of Jesus' day see God? Was every Jew of Jesus' day saved? No. Who? The pure heart shall see God. So there is an affirmation. Truly, without controversy, God is good to Israel. Second line, to such are of a pure heart. But, look at verse 2. As for me... That is going to contrast himself with the goodness of God to Israel. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. That's line number two. My steps had nearly slipped. means exactly the same thing. So in other words, Asaph is on the verge of abandoning God. Even though God's good to Israel. He's on the verge of breaking the covenant. He's he had, he's experiencing a, a, a dark night of the soul. He's ready to slip. He's ready to fall. 
uh, out of a relationship with God. Now the reason for that conflict, look at verse 3. Because, for, here's why his, he's on slippery ground. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I looked around and I saw wicked people were prospering, I was envious of them. And that is the cause for him just ready to fall and slip away from his relationship with God. See, Asaph see, looks at the situation. He sees it pretty clearly. He sees wicked people are prospering. And he can't jive that with verse 1. That God is what? Good to the pure of heart. Because these people aren't pure of heart. And guess what? They're prospering. And this is causing a conflict of the soul. And it's just about done him in, and he is ready to fall. Okay? So now he gives the details about the prosperity. How do these wicked people prosper? First of all, he says they prosper in health. Look at verse 4. For there are no pangs in their death. See? Look at this. But their strength is firm. Uh, some translations say there's no pangs until their death. In other words, they go through life uh, in relatively good health. They never have a sick day. They don't have to have a prayer list like we have here every Sunday morning. You ever wonder why the wicked, some of the wicked seem to be so healthy and here they're, here they're godly people and they're, and they're sick? They, they have no pangs and they're definitely like this. But their strength is firm. That's wicked people. He's envious of that. They, they prosper in their health. Next, they prosper in business. Now this next verse is a little more difficult to, to translate, but you'll see it. They are not in trouble as other men. Now the word trouble there literally means toil. They don't toil. They don't labor. That's another word for trouble. They don't, when you say, uh, they, don't, they don't labor as other men. Uh, everything seems to come to them on a silver platter. Everything they touch is a Midas touch. You know, different people like that, godless people. Nor are they plagued like other men. It means they're not burdened with other men. How am I going to pay the bills next week? And he looks at that and he says, that doesn't jive with verse 1, that God is good to Israel. Looks like he's good to the wicked people, you see. And then next, they prosper in their confidence. They're arrogant people. Look what it says in verse 6. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Uh, that means they walk around in an air of confidence. They have their head high and their shoulders back. In verse 6 says, violence covers them like a garment. Now, what is this describing? Uh, it's describing something you wear. You see that in verse 6? A necklace, a garment. Uh, confidence, uh, they just exude confidence. It's like they're wearing a necklace. Have you ever seen a presidential medallion? We just went through a graduation. The president of the college, and this is every college in the United States, wears a great big medallion around his neck. Or and guess what? When he walks into the room, everyone looks at that big medallion. He doesn't have to say, look at me. All he has to do is walk in the room and everyone turns their head. Or somebody that has a you know, big 10-carat gold necklace. They don't have to call attention to it. It calls attention to itself. And when they walk into the room, you know, everyone just turns and looks. And they make way for these important people. You ever see people sort of just make way for somebody? That's important. End of verse 6 says, and violence covers them like a garment. That means they step on other people without regard. 
you know, don't get in my way, I'm just moving ahead, you know. Uh, they, they have, they practice cutthroat techniques in business. They don't care who they are. They don't care about the little guy, you know. And uh, people respect them for that. Because there's sort of a, an arrogance about that. There's something that's attractive about that, you see. And they wear this attitude uh, like you'd wear a garment, is what it says in verse 6. And then in their wealth, they prosper financially and with things. Look at verse 7. Their eyes bulge with abundance. That's a great one. Uh, <laughs> that means when they see things that they want, their eyes get big. They lust. It's talking about lusting. They lust for abundance. They're self-indulgent. Uh, they are hubristic in a sense. Uh, they have more. This is a great statement in verse 7. They have more than heart could wish. You've heard of greed? I want this, 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 this. This exceeds greed. This is more than you can wish for. Did you ever see an interview with somebody who is sickening wealthy? They said, well, how many billions do you have? He said, well, I don't know. If I knew, I wouldn't be rich. That's how they define rich. You can't even tell how much you got. It's more than you ever imagined when you started out in business. Boundless lust is what they have. This is when, verse 7, more than the heart could wish for, this is when, you know, when you say, you ever hear this statement, something like this, you know, enough is enough already. I've been so blessed. <laughs> Lord, stop. <laughs> enough? Hey, there's never enough. These people have more than enough. And that's what they've got. And, and in verse 8, you see this attitude. It says, they scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. Uh, they speak loftily. Uh, these are people who brag. It doesn't matter who they step on, who they have to oppress. Uh, it's sort of like a game to them. You know, This is a game of who wins the game. It goes on to say in verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens. That's line number one. And then we have a contrasting line that says, at the end of verse 9, and their tongue walks through the earth. Uh, Lynn was reading this morning this verse in the ESV version, and it says this, their tongue struts through the earth. Boy, isn't that interesting? So notice that they're speaking, and they're speaking, number one, against heaven, and then verse 9, the second part of verse 9 talks about earth. There's no one that's spared. They mock God. Notice at the beginning, they set their mouth against heaven. They mock God. And that means also they mock people on earth. Their tongue walks through the earth. Now, it's very unusual that they say this because uh, a tongue doesn't do any walking. Your feet walk. Your tongue wags. So, you know, there was an old ad that said, let your fingers do the walking. Remember that one? <laughs> through the yellow pages. But this is a tongue that's walking. What does that mean? It means they, no one on earth is spared. They have a criticism for everybody. It doesn't matter whether it's the Pope, whether it's Mother Teresa, whether it's Billy Graham. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. They have a comment. And uh, no one is spared this arrogance and this mockery. You know, that's, they're so self-consumed. Now here's a bottom line. Look at verse 10. Therefore, oh, this is really interesting. This is where it gets scary. 
therefore his people. This is God's people. His people return here or go back here. That's God's people. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. Now what is this describing? This is describing God's people looking at the rich people who are wicked and wanting to get in on it a little bit. So they go to these people, they flock to their seminars, they want to know the secrets of the rich and the famous. Did you ever do that? You go to some seminar to find out how to get rich. They respect these rich people and everything they say. They defer to them, which they shouldn't do, as we're going to see. And uh, that phrase at the end of verse 10, which is the waters of the cup are drained by God's people, that means they're sucking up knowledge. They're thirsty to know what these rich people know, and they drink at the fountain of these unregenerate people. Now that's a sad commentary about God's people looking to the unregenerate people for the secrets of success. But that's what they do, and they lap it up. Okay. Now, we see the defiance of the wicked people. Verse 11 says, and we're going back to the wicked now, and they say, how does God know? In other words, God doesn't see all the things that I do when I step on people and I the lust of my heart. And they say, in verse 11, is there knowledge in the Most High? And uh, this is the fatal mistake of wicked people. They think God's silence means God's approval or that God doesn't see what they're doing. And God's silence doesn't mean that God is giving them permission to do this, in a sense. It doesn't mean that God is powerless. It just means God's long-suffering. God's long-suffering that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And they mistake God's silence for, in a sense, God's either ignorance or God's approval. Now we have a summary statement in verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase, increase in riches. Um... Uh, that's the story. That's what Asaph sees. That's what he envies. <laughs> That's what he desires. And he says, my feet are on slippery ground. I'm ready to head, head that direction myself. Okay? Now he turns his attention to himself, and he personalizes all this, and you'll see this in verse 13. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. In other words, uh, what am I doing serving God and you know, giving sacrifices and asking for forgiveness and cleansing my heart? It's all in vain. It's a waste of time. Why am I serving God? The rich are the ones who are successful, and God's people are the ones who are suffering. See? What am I doing wasting my time? Look what he says. And I wash my hands in innocence. Why do I go through all these rituals of washing, which represents cleansing my heart? You know, they're outward rituals. He says, what do I do that for? What's the value of following God? The wicked thrive, and the pure heart, they suffer. It's all a waste of time. That's what he says. I've done it in vain. It's useless. What am I doing that? Do you ever ask yourself, you're probably wondering, what the world am I doing? You know, has no value whatsoever. Verse 14. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Now notice that. He says, all day long I've been plagued. Now if you go back to verse 5, look what it says about the wicked. They are not 
in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. The wicked are not plagued, but guess what? I'm plagued. See? It doesn't seem like God is good to Israel. God's good to the pure heart. It just doesn't make sense. That's what he's saying. Verse 14. All day long I'm plagued. I'm chastened every morning. Every pound I get, every morning I get up. I say, oh man, another day like this. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, if I would have ever come out and said that publicly, he's not thought about coming out and saying this. It's really not worth serving God. Wicked don't serve God, look what they got. See? So he's thinking about possibly revealing his heart, what he's really thinking inside. Verse 15, he said, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your people. Lord, if I had made that mistake. Now he's, remember, he's written this psalm and he's thinking back and he said, you know, if I would have done that and I would have abandoned God and I would have done that, he said, I would have made a terrible mistake. I would have influenced generations to come. My children, my great-grandchildren, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, I would have destroyed their lives by doing that. And so he decides to hold his But boy, that's where his heart is going. So he faces a real dilemma. And his real dilemma is, because it's still a struggle, how can God be good to Israel when the wicked are the ones who are prospering? So he agonizes over that issue. That's the trial. See, that's the trial. Through verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. When I considered all those things, it was painful to me. I couldn't figure it out. It just didn't make sense. God blessing these wicked people and the righteous are suffering. Okay? That's the trial that he's going through. That's the battle of the soul. Now we come to part two, the triumph. How does he settle the issue? Now read verse 16 again. Look what it says. When I thought how to understand all this, it was too painful for me. But now look at the next word. Until. It was too painful for me to figure it all out. Until. Until what? Until when? Look what it says. Until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. When he got in God's presence, where the glory of God is, suddenly the fog lifted. And his confusion dissipated. And uh, suddenly he comes to his senses and everything becomes clear. He struggled until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Look what it says at the end of verse 17. Then I understood their end. That's the wicked people who are rich. Suddenly I realized, hey, they have an unfavorable end. So all their riches are very temporary. But in the end, they will be destroyed. But notice what it takes for Asaph to come to his senses. And this is what it takes for us to come to our senses. He had to separate himself from that world out there, get his eyes off the wrong things, come into the sanctuary and get his eyes on God's holiness and God's glory. And when he did that, 
suddenly everything cleared up and he realized the truth that the wicked are one day going to perish and everything they have is lost and then it will be negative for them it won't be a positive so look what he says in verse 18 and boy this is where he's starting to think clearly now look what he says surely God you have set them in slippery places now when you go back to verse 2 what do you see but as for me my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped now both groups Asaph and the wicked are on slippery ground. But in verse 18, it was God that put the wicked people on slippery ground. Right? In verse 2, it was Asaph that put himself on slippery ground. As you'll see. So God has put them on slippery ground. That's the difference. He planned, he's put them on slippery ground. He's allowed them to get all these riches. And it's going to be that that actually becomes their downfall. God has done this in order that they slip. He's put them on slippery ground in order that they slip. And the amazing thing is that the wicked people don't realize they're on slippery ground. They're walking around like this, you know, strutting, right? So everybody can see their success and their importance. They have full confidence. That they got everything in control. And guess what? God has it all in control. He's put them on slippery ground in order that they will fall. They think they're on solid ground using their common sense. They are on quicksand. And they're ready to sink. They say, oh, God doesn't know what's going on. Remember that? Verse 11. How does God know? He doesn't know anything. We can get away with murder. We want. Oh, yeah, he knows. In fact, he's put you right on slippery ground. He's got everything under control. And when you look at the end of verse 18, Asaph says, you cast them down to destruction. This is going to be God's doing. Oh, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment. Interesting word there, moment. It means twinkling. Well, who's talking about the twinkling of an eye? In a split second. Oh, how you bring them to desolation. They are utterly, look at that word, utterly consumed with terrors. Their uh, destruction, their desolation is going to be sudden, and it's going to be absolutely complete. And when they fall, it's going to be a big fall. Verse 20 says, As a dream when a man awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Uh, they think God doesn't know anything. They say, ah, oh, it's like God's asleep. That's what the rich people do. That's like God's asleep. And Asaph said, well, yeah, it's sort of like you're asleep. You haven't done anything. But guess what? When you wake up, they better watch out. Because when you wake up, you're going to, look at that next word, despise their enemies. Do you realize that God despises certain people? He's good to Israel and the pure of heart, but there's others that he despises. Because they're mockers. And, you know, we think that these people could have been Jews. But they're not the pure heart Jews. They're part of Israel, but they have mocked God. They don't, see, they recognize God, but they, they mock God. And God has put them there, and it's going to be a sudden, and it's going to be uh, a complete fall for these people. Now he gives us his reaction 
to this revelation that he's received in the temple. Look what he says. Verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved. And what was it grieved over? That's the question. And I was vexed in my mind. Uh, probably he was grieved and vexed over his former attitude. To think that I was that close to jumping in and attending that seminar and seeking their secrets and siding with them and abandoning God and saying all that I do for God is a waste of time. And man, I shudder when I think that I was about to do that. So he's aggrieved that he was thinking, even thinking about that. Vexed in my heart, vexed in my mind. And by the way, there's the word heart in that particular verse. Some of yours might say, vexed in my reins. Now that's an old King James word, vexed in my reins. R-E-I-N-S. Anybody have reins in their Bible? Let's just say one. A couple of you do. Uh, literally means your kidneys. Because <laughs> the Jews didn't believe the heart was the center as we think of heart. They always thought the kidneys was the center of the emotions and uh, the center of a person's life. But... He was grieved that he had that kind of attitude. He wasn't thinking as a covenant believer in God. He was thinking as a person apart from God. In verse 22, he says, look at this. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a stupid idiot. <laughs> I wasn't even in my right mind when I was thinking that way. Look at the end of verse 22. I was like a beast before you. Talking about God. He said, I was like a beast before you. You know, a beast acts on instinct. An animal acts on instinct. It doesn't act on rationale. It doesn't act on faith. Animals don't have faith in God before you. Instead of, Lord, I'm right here. I'm, I made this commitment to you. I've entered the covenant. I've gone through all the motions. And I didn't trust you. I was acting like an animal that has no self-awareness that you even exist. See, this is what blows his mind that he even did this thing in the past. Now look what he says in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Yeah, I was on the verge of slipping, but I didn't. I never gave up. And now I'm continually with you. Verse 23. And look at this next statement. You hold me by my right hand. I was on slippery ground and I was ready to go down to the count. And guess what you did? You held me there so I but the wicked people, you put them on slippery ground, and you're not reaching out to help them. They're going to go down for the count. Very picturesque, isn't it? You see how Asaph is analyzing the whole situation, and he realized his previous way of thinking was totally out of character with the child of God. Look what he says in verse 24. You will guide me, that's in the future, with your counsel. And afterward, Receive me to glory. Now, what do the wicked get afterwards? They get destruction. What does Asaph get afterwards? He gets glory. I'm not talking about heaven here. Uh, this word glory is never used for heaven in the Old Testament. But what he's talking about is that I have a glorious future. These people do not have a future. They are going to be destroyed. Whatever that glory is, he doesn't really go on to explain it. But he's talking about basically his future, the rest of his life. Then he asks the question. 
he says this. Uh, he says, who have I in heaven but you? Is there anyone up there I have that I can depend upon except you? The answer is no, you're the only one I've got. And then he says this, the end of verse 25. And there's none upon the earth that I desire beside you. So he says there's only one person I want to keep my eyes on. I've kept my eyes on other people. And now I realize I only want to keep my eyes on you. See? He longs only for God. That's what he longs for. He says this in verse 26. He says, My flesh and my heart fail. In other words, I am weak. I realize I'm weak. But God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. Now the word strength there is actually a Hebrew word that means rock. God is the rock of my heart. See, he's like the foundation that doesn't crumble. It's not like quicksand. God is the foundation of my heart. It's weak, but guess what? I'm on a strong foundation. And God is my portion forever. Before he had his eyes on what the wicked were getting. He wanted that to be his portion. He says, no, there's only one thing I really want in life. I just want God. I want God to be my portion. For indeed, verse 27, those who are, who are far from you shall what? Perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Shows us that the wicked people that he's describing are Jews. They abandoned him, they had forsaken him, which means at one time they were with him. They had forsaken him for what? Harlotry, which is a way of saying idolatry. They have started putting their faith in idols and trusting in a lot of the superstition. And now they are going to perish, he says. And then he says this, this is how he concludes verse 28. He says this, But it is good for me to draw to God. Now look at verse 27. Those who are what? Far from you. Look at verse 28. But it's good for me to what? Draw to you. See the difference? They are moving away from God and will perish. And Asaph is moving toward God. And he says, it's good that I do that. I have put my trust in the Lord God. That's what he's going to trust. Why are you doing it, Asaph? Here's a purpose statement. That I may declare all your works. I'm going to do it because trust you, and guess what? When I trust you, I'll have a glorious future, and whatever comes, comes from your hand, and then I'll be able to tell everybody what you've done. Now notice that the psalm ends with the word good, but it is good. Notice it begins in verse 1 with the word good. You see that? God is good, and at the end, verse 28, it's good for me. God is good in verse 1. Verse 28 is good for me. Because God is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure of heart. And so when we think of this psalm, we start realizing that when we get our eyes on other people, and we're envious of what other people have, um, we're on slippery ground. The moment you start envying what someone else has, you, you step onto a slippery slope. 
And many of us have been there. And we also realize from this psalm, when we question God's goodness, because the wicked are succeeding and the righteous suffer, then we're not thinking clearly. Uh, we have a fog in our mind. Okay? And we need to realize that the only way we'll ever come to our senses is to get that right perspective on things. And that means we have to get our eyes off of people and we have to get our eyes on the Lord. And when we do that, then we get the right perspective. Now, as I thought of this psalm, I said, well, how does that apply to the New Testament? Is there anything in the New Testament? And I thought, oh yeah, there is a story that Jesus told. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that story? The rich man, he lived in luxury. Anything he wanted, he could have. He reclined in his table, says he ate sumptuously, and he was dressed in robes of purple. Couldn't get any wealthier than that. And Lazarus the beggar sat outside the gate, just desiring a crumb that would fall from the rich man's table. Couldn't even get to it. The dogs ate him before he could get to a crumb. Now, when you look at those two people, and you step back and say, well, which one would I have envied the most? The rich man <laughs> or, or the beggar? Well, you'd have to say you'd envy the rich man. He's a success. But Jesus says, and then the rich man died. And in hell, lifted up his eyes in torment, begging just for a drip of water. The thirst, the quenches, parched tongue. But Lazarus was found lying in Abraham's bosom, which is a picture of a banquet, with Abraham being the host of the table, reclining at the meal, eating. And there's Lazarus. Lying there, next to Abraham, the father of the faith. Eating sumptuously in the kingdom of God. And Jesus then says, And the rich man in hell looked across and saw Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. And he said, Lazarus! Lazarus! Will you give me a drink? Tables were reversed. Will you, will you go back and tell my brothers not to come here? Don't follow my path. See, Jesus tells the story. He brings it all together in one story. It's a commentary on Psalm 73. So when you look at the two, well, you might be envious of the rich man, but in the end, it's Lazarus who receives the benefits. So we need to make sure that we get what I would call the long view. Not the short view. Don't look at people and say, oh, he's got this, she's got that. You know, hey, that's a short view. In the end, they're on slippery ground. God's put them there. And they're going to go to destruction. But the believer, in the end, will inherit the kingdom of God. And it won't be a temporary. You know, I've written a lot about the kingdom of God and spoken about a lot of it. The kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it goes on forever and ever. And it's there when God gives us our rewards and the tables are turned. Next week, we'll pick up with Asaph's 74th Psalm. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for uh, this passage that speaks to our hearts because so it's so easy for us to look at others who seem more successful and we wonder what in the world are we doing wrong. Uh, we're not doing anything wrong. We're just looking at the wrong thing. Lord, you are our portion. You are everything we need. You are everything our heart longs for and desires. Lord, help us to walk by faith, not by sight, knowing that you have promised that if we seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, all these things will be ours in Christ's name.